you can't really connect these accounts together unless you dig deeper into how these accounts were created. Where did they come from? Were they bought or were they created at scale by either a bot farm or an account creating farm or the adversary created them? And once you dig into that, you can start connecting accounts to each other by all types of heuristics and really understand the network and differentiate between less sophisticated actors, which will not be in a network and will not have a linchpin that organizes them or multiple, and the more sophisticated networks that will have those characteristics. This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyberist podcast. Today I'm speaking with Asaf Kipnis, owner and head consultant of ASK Integrity Solutions. Asaf, thanks for chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, our pleasure. So before we get started, usually what I like to do is ask folks to kind of, you know, give their elevator pitch of themselves, if you will. So tell us some about yourself, your background, and what experiences you had that led you to, to where you are now. Sure. Yeah, I've been doing that a lot recently. So I have about 10 years of experience in information security and trust and safety in tech. In a former life, we would call it, I was in the military doing border defense as an officer back in Israel, which surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, is extremely still connected to what I'm doing today. In the last eight years, I've been an investigator, a team lead, and a manager of the e-crime team at Meta, working on the most complex abuse types, financially motivated abuse types at Meta and at LinkedIn. Most of my time in these roles was spent detecting, tracking, attributing financially motivated actor networks who are attempting to harm users and make money in kind of any way. The focus was mainly on actor behavior, which I'm pretty sure I'm going to talk about a lot today, and the connection between online and offline harm. Okay. Very interesting. So if we may ask, and if you can disclose it, is this a lot of what people would categorize as like social engineering stuff that you were working on primarily there? Or is it a mix of, you know, what you could think of as like typical IT threat where, you know, convince somebody to download a piece of malware? It's more on the former. It's more on the social engineering, phishing, scams, more of that, less of attacking a company and more of attacking of the person. Sometimes it did go to attacking a company, but usually if, if that was that, it was more of attacking of a brand and more of like, how do these large or uh, criminal organizations make money at scale? Okay. Very interesting. Well, I hope we get a chance to dig into that because that's a very interesting topic. So let's talk some about, you know, what the day-to-day -day looks like in that process, right? Or in that role, is this driven to you by complaints or were you tracking adversaries like uh, ping, keeping a tabs on specific groups of people? Uh, and if that's the case, that lends itself to the question of why keep them on the platform, if you can identify them uh, and stuff like that. But kind of walk us through what's, what's the day-to-day -day look like in that role? So it's a mixed bag. It's a mix of all of that. You could, on the teams that I were in, it was more, if there's a complaint, it's a complaint by another team that is dealing with mostly with prevalence metrics and trying to quell some sort of abuse and they hit a wall. They don't know what to do with it or they deem to attribute it and really dig down to what was happening. So that's one type, one kind of entryway. Another one is once we have 
adversaries or more once we have a type of behavior of an adversary, we will track that. It is a great question. Once you find an adversary, why keep it on the platform? And I was just talking about it recently. You really shouldn't, especially on a, on the social on the social platform. Once you know an account is bad, it needs to go away. But that sometimes contradicts because you want to learn about the adversary, understand their TTPs. So it's a mix of that and being able to distill learnings before you absolutely have to take down the adversaries. So part of what I constantly talk about is avoiding the whack-a-mole. And part of avoiding whack-a-mole is waiting a little bit and figuring out the adversary and see what they're doing so you can take them down a scale instead of, oh, there's an attacker or a bad account. We just take it down immediately. So yeah, those are mostly the escalation types for the way things were getting to us. But it was also from trying to understand, this was later in my career, was trying to understand how do we, how do, we do large threat mitigation through understanding a much higher level of how bad accounts in general look on the platform and how do victims look up the, on the platform of specific schemes. Okay, interesting. So you had mentioned taking people down at scale. Is it fair to assume then that there are such clear similarities or is it more the case that they're using templates and things like that, that are more like what you see in scam pages or as they're referred to in the underground, if you will, but phishing sites, things like that. Can you double click on, on what you mean by take them down at scale? Yeah. So it's a great question. It really, from my perspective, comes down to the sophistication of the adversary. So low sophistication adversaries, they're all very similar with the way they behave on a very, very low level of they create accounts. An example would be you create an account, you don't roll out there, you send a lot of messages, very simple TTPs. So when you want to take down low hanging fruit, you can really, you don't really have to dig in that deep, but you can dig into these very low level similarities, like what you said. But as you go deeper into how the organization builds itself, establish themselves in your infrastructure or in your network, the similarities become a lot more convoluted and obfuscated. And then you need to really understand an example would be you have an adversary that actually has pretty good accounts that they're using. They're using them for multiple types of schemes. And you can't really connect these accounts together unless you dig deeper into how these accounts were created. Where did they come from? Were they bought or were they created at scale by either a bot farm or an account creating farm or the adversary created them? And once you dig into that, you can start connecting accounts to each other by all types of heuristics and really understand the network and differentiate between less sophisticated actors, which will not be in a network and will not have a linchpin that organizes them or multiple and the more sophisticated networks that will have those characteristics. The difficult part there is that you really need to dig down and really figure out how to weed out the false positives in those, in those cases. Yeah. Interesting. So you mentioned kind of the logistics of their exercise or of their campaign, let's call it being one of the indicators that you can look at. I have to imagine both of the properties that you mentioned, both Meta, uh, which I assume you're referring primarily to the Facebook property, but I would imagine Instagram probably also lends itself to some of the type of stuff you're describing. 
and LinkedIn, I would imagine that the sign-up tempo for those services is probably non-trivial. Can you give us some idea of how you guys go about solving for that? Or is it, if it's proprietary, obviously, you know, feel free to, to take a pass. Uh, but I'm interested to kind of understand how do you pick that out in the sea of new accounts that are floating by? How do you understand those patterns? Is it, you know, signal based where it's like, hey, the same IP is starting all of these? Does it get down to that easy? Or are there are other characteristics that you look for? So it's extremely complex. And I will say a lot of these companies, some of their largest teams are the teams that are fighting fake account creation or fake accounts in general, because it's a huge problem. And the, uh, the creation is fairly straightforward. You have a very low friction to create new accounts. But to answer the question, I think from my perspective, it comes down to what you focus on. So the larger teams deal with fake accounts at large, right? They look at how do fake accounts get created, and then you generalize that and have a metric around it. When you go into more pinpointed investigations, you want to understand what this specific organization, what the specific adversary is doing and how are they doing it? So you might catch it at the account creation. That's very difficult. You'll probably catch it as these accounts get connected to the infrastructure, connected to this attack or perpetrating an attack, and then you'll work backwards from it. It's a great question. I and mean, to, to catch just fake accounts being created, there's a lot of mitigations there and adversaries have learned probably all of them. So they're working mm -hmm. through it. What is more feasible is to catch the accounts as you understand down the pipeline, kind of down the pipeline and up from creation of mm -hmm. at what point can I catch this account that I know they're about to do something bad. So not only that it's a fake account, it's a fake account that did A, B, C, D mm -hmm. in to do a scheme I'm working on. And then you can somewhat generalize it, but it's difficult because adversaries have different, even within what they do, they have different goals for different accounts. Okay. So you mentioned that primarily you were looking at financially motivated adversary groups. Can you give us some idea of what are some of the campaigns that they run? What do they look like? In particular, what are things that our listeners could look out for? So the simplest ones, are, or the simplest, the most straightforward ones are phishing and social engineering that will try to take over assets. If it's LinkedIn, if it's Meta, if it's anything else, they will try to take over an asset that you have and run ads on that. Let's say you have an ad account, so they will try to get into your ad account. They will try to get into your account itself. Other things that I've seen as malware propagation through messages or creating clone accounts of your accounts, and I will reach out to all, all of your contacts and propagate malware. Those are the fairly straightforward ones. And then it kind of goes down into, for example, leveraging the ads platform on the network, or for example, you can leverage on the network, you can leverage Google ads or Tavola ads by duplicating virality. And this is something we saw back in 2016, 2018 with the North Macedonians, North Macedonians troll farms. What they did is they created their pages and groups and they're not necessarily taking advantage of anybody on platform per se, but what they're doing is that they're propagating slanted news, not exactly disinformation, but more misinformation that, they, that already went viral. But what they're doing is they're 
plopping a ton of ads on that. So what happens, they propagate that on a social network, let's say on Twitter, on Parler and Facebook. And what happens is the followers believe that these are real news outlets and click on them. And then you're in turn, you're abusing multiple platforms to get your, your way because let's say you put ads on your website, you get paid from Google. You don't get paid from Meta, but Meta is more of your uh, distribution mechanism. Interesting. So in that scenario that you described, so is it Google's complaint to Meta that drives that? Or is it users who figure out like, hey, this is all trash? Like, where does the complaint step come into play in that scenario? Yeah, usually it wasn't it wasn't anything like coming from Google in my in my perspective. It was more researchers, users, newspapers that were it was really interesting because they were looking into misinfo or disinfo. That was kind of like the news. And it, it still is. Right. And then they ran into these kids in North Macedonia that are not really doing it for political motivation, but it was rampant. Right. Right. Give us an idea how much money were these people making in a month? In a month. So one scheme, if I remember correctly, they were making millions of dollars off of Google. Wow. No problem at all. Because they were doing ad abuse on the Google ad abuse that is fairly straightforward. And then they were just, they had a giant scale. Looking at something else I worked on, that I know for a fact, because I saw, if I remember, saw the numbers on a social engineering scheme, they were also making millions of dollars. In okay. This wow. So I've always known that pay for eyeballs was very, very risky business. In fact, I recognize that as one of the early risks to investing in Google. I won't get into it, but I missed an opportunity to invest very early in Google for the reason that I didn't do it was because I was like, wait, this seems way too easy to game. What I didn't take into account is their overall scale makes it hard for the gaming actually to make that big of an impact. But when blogging first took off, one of the things that I noticed was that majority of the commenters on an individual's blog ran their own blogs. And I realized this was kind of like the self-looking ice cream cone where the bloggers were making sure like you make your rounds, you support those other bloggers that you want to come back and support you. And at the end of the day, you're not really getting any new true leads or anything for an advertiser. What you're getting is kind of like a gang of people who know to kind of work their circuit, direct each other, you know, direct their visitors to a friend's blog, all of this, you know, promotion. And, you know, don't get me wrong. These are all fundamental aspects of entrepreneurial existence, right? You know, you recommend people to your friend's businesses and stuff. I mean, this is completely normal. But the thing in this scenario that wasn't normal was that the commodity was other people's eyeballs, other people's time, right? And when it's through the guise of potential interests, Google, I felt, was going to be end up being in a tight spot because they were going to be saying, well, we brought you 100,000 visitors this month, so pay us, right? So them talking to the advertiser. But then if the advertiser, you know, ethically, if they were to say, well, of those 100,000, how many of them were actual organic versus some type of managed manipulation of your service? So it is interesting to me to hear that, A, I wasn't mistaken, but B, that it has moved into even this 
idea where not just in kind of the self-authorship, but like you said, let's create fake news sites and load it up with ads and things like that. That's very, very interesting. So when you talk about organization and there being like linchpin members and things like that, can you describe some of that for us? Are we talking organized crime or are we talking about just smart people all working together? I mean, can you give us some background of that? And if you do have OG or OC uh, tie-in, can you link that back to other larger, you know, cartels or or things like that? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So it's a mix. It's a mix of all of those. I'll start with the worst and go down to the, if not the worst, but the worst that I've seen currently are within the scam space that has gotten extremely complex. And I think we can, I've had conversation about equating so they're called pig butchering scams, which are extremely complex scams. I don't know if you're familiar. I'm happy to talk about those for a second. Well, but yeah, no, please, please elaborate just in case we have lots of listeners yeah. that may not have heard the term. So please go ahead. So pig butchering scams, I won't go too deep, but what happens from the beginning is you have, you had the Chinese triads who were trying to make money by creating building casinos. Then 2020 came and they couldn't fill those casinos. So they were like, okay, good idea. Let's scam people and get money from them. What they did is they then basically kidnapped people, but with fake job scams to work in those casinos that turned into scam centers. So that's modern day slavery. That's not the scam yet. Those people that started in APAC would contact you. I bet you've received those text messages. Hey, this is, this is blah, blah. How are you? And you're like, this is the wrong number. And then they start to coax a conversation. And that happens on all social networks, especially dating. What happens then is those people, the scammers get you into a friendship. It's less of a romance scam. It's more of a friendship. And then they get you to invest in gold futures or in crypto. And it all becomes, it looks very, very real. They have a bunch of infrastructure. So. I won't go too deep into that. It's really, really bad because they just continue sucking money out of the person until there's okay. no. Why is this the worst right now? Because it's the triad and it also devolved into other organized crime that's seeing this, like cartels that are seeing this as a great opportunity to make money for free or just feeding and housing slaves. So that's extremely complex. And the worst I've seen after that, I've seen organized crimes from Eastern Europe. A lot of those are doing kind of evolved from these kids that were making bot farms into Eastern European crime families that are doing that and doing account takeover. And they're making millions and millions of dollars that I was discussing earlier. And then it goes down to the opportunist or for example, in, where was it? in Pakistan, it's kind of a, or in Vietnam, it's these businesses that you have businesses and you have just, you know, opportunists that like, this is a great way to make money. My friend did it. My cousin did it. Why don't I do it? And then hundreds and thousands of people are doing it and it becomes kind of its own self-sustaining economy within the country. Hmm. And then all the way down to just the person's doing fraud and could also do it at a really large scale, but it's not an organization. So to answer the question, it's a little bit of everything. Yeah. It just, it's kind of like the scale of horribleness of the perpetration, which I see pig butchering is the worst because they're doing a bunch of things tied together with human exploitation and uh, connection to terrorist organization and the least that are just like entrepreneurs or people like that are just doing it as a way to make money. 
Yeah, interesting. I have definitely heard of the last one you mentioned. You know, there is this kind of hustle culture. And unfortunately, some people took it to mean like be a hustler as opposed to get out and hustle. It's unfortunate that they named it that phrase because I think, unfortunately, in you know modern lexicon, there's two ways to apply that word. And I'm certain that the people who coined it didn't mean go out and rip people off. But, you know, as you're describing this thing, it makes me think of like the very old and largely unsophisticated attack, I believe referred to as the Spanish prisoner, where this is goes back hundreds of years where people you would receive a letter in the mail that would be addressed to you because your name appeared, you know, somewhere, maybe in a newspaper or something like this. Someone would send you a letter, you open it up, and it would be someone claiming to be a friend of yours or a family member, you know, perhaps a distant family member, and saying, you know, I've been imprisoned in Spain, and Spain followed a similar legal system as like a Napoleonic code, where you were guilty until proven innocent, and therefore, you know, you're incarcerated until your court date and things like that, and that you have to feed yourself while you're there and things like this. And they would reach out trying to tap into people's empathy or compassion and, you know, saying, please send this money. And this was like old school, you know, so think literally hand delivered snail mail. And in some cases before there were even like full on postal systems at scale, this was, you know, that old of a scam. But some of what you're describing seems old like that. What percentage of people do you think fall for these? Like, because like I said, this is at least to me, granted, I'm a practitioner, so maybe I have a bias for exposure to the stuff, but does the average person fall for this? And if so, you know, what, at what frequency? So yes, the average person does fall for it. And the exact scheme you're talking about actually exists today with phones that people will call you and say, your son uh, got in a car accident and he's. Well, uh, they'll call you as your son. I got in a car accident and you need to send money because I'm in jail. Mm -hmm. That's another one. So I think the stereotype is older people who are kind of like alone. Those are the people that fall for it. And maybe that was the case with romance scams. It's not the case anymore. We're seeing middle-aged people, younger. I've spoken to younger people. I'm seeing 20s, 30s that have fallen for it. And because I think the step up that the adversaries have taken is that they're really understanding the psychology of how to get you to trust them. And I actually, I wrote something about it because I let a scammer take me on the ride, gonna show me what you're gonna want from me. And it's really compelling. They're your friend and they'll do a lot of things like, oh, I'll let you draw some of the money. Look, you got it, you made a lot of money and I'll make more money. And they'll play on your emotions and they actually do. It's less kind of a, some of it is blind, like the phone calls, but some of it is not. They really try to figure out who you are before they go after you and figure out what best persona to go after you with. And then they also escalate pressure. So to us, it's like, hmm, that's weird. Why would you fall for that? But then people fall for that all the time. And I think our biggest hindrance is that we think like that, not because we don't understand. It's because this creates stigma. And then you have people who have been scammed who just won't talk about it. And then you don't learn anything because you don't know how it looks like to be scammed because people just are very, very ashamed to talk about it, especially if they're younger. Sure. Yeah, sure. No, I can see that. So you mentioned that you let this person lead you through. Was this person like knowing the, like they were witting and wanted to show you this, or you're saying that you had identified one and then you played the part of the victim? 
I played the part of the victim and I kind of rushed it because I didn't have the energy to build this whole relationship with them, but I got them to, so it started on a platform and then they moved me to an encrypted chat service. And then it was a, a lot of it was becoming my friend. There was no conversation about money or anything like that. Just talking, sending pictures. It was a, a young woman sending me pictures that are benign, but, and then slowly teaching me how and building my confidence in that she actually knows, she actually knows what she's doing. And this, look at these people, look at my uncle who made a lot of money. So it was really interesting. The problem with researching pig butchering like that is that 99%, the person that you are talking to and kind of like fooling is also a victim. Mm -hmm. And that that's a little ethically iffy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could imagine that. So obviously look out for somebody proposing, let's get off platform quickly. That's a hundred percent a red that's flag for one. Well, okay. any platform, if someone's trying to take you off platform, that should be a huge red flag. Okay. And then the other was seemingly unsolicited contact. Someone reaches out to you out of the blue and says, Hey, nice to meet you. What are some other things to look out for? Other things to look out for. I think it's more it depends on your sophistication and understanding of what's happening, but people wanting you to invest in something without you meeting them talking. Well, you might be talking to them, but without really any context of investments. Or another example of crypto scams is, uh, hey, meet this crypto expert. I, in essence, don't take financial advice from people you don't know. I well, think that would be... <laughs> But the, right, it's funny. It makes us giggle, but like people do that all the time. They get yeah. advice and they invest a lot of money. Yeah, those are the things and things that don't feel right, or these people don't want to meet you or don't want to talk to you on the phone because of whatever, especially if it happens on a, on a dating app, which is the place you want to go make connections, right? You want to meet someone and then you meet someone and it looks really great. This, you just need to start being mindful of the red flags that are coming up slowly. Sure. Yeah. You know, I used to joke. So here in the US, we would have these late night at nighttime commercial programming. Once upon a time, if you could even remember that, we're all pretty much on streaming services anymore. But on commercial programming at nighttime, they would stop airing any type of normal program and they would switch to all of these, what they referred to as infomercials. And there was a very famous guy who I don't want to get sued by his family. I, I don't believe he's alive anymore, but I know he has some uh, wealthy sons, so I won't bring up his specific name. But there was a guy who did a bunch of real estate ones where he would, you know, show these amazing properties and pull up in a Ferrari and then tell everybody, I can show you how to, you know, do all this stuff. And I would always joke and say like, well, I think I know the way to do it is to sh tell people you're going to show them how to become rich <laughs> and then sell them a video, but don't tell them that that's the real way to do it. And I always felt like I could see through all that. But I, I grew up in a place where, you know, there was kind of a lot of that hustle crime, if you will, you know, people sell in speakers out of the back of a van. Then you get home and find out that the speaker is just the box. There's no loudspeakers inside and maybe there's bricks in it to weigh it down. You know, that was a common one. But it's fascinating in some ways, you know, well, disappointing to see that, you know, scumbags or whatever you want to call them, you know, miscreants found their way to this great invention. We created the internet. But on the other hand, it's fascinating to see, A, 
the popularity of it amongst people who would they have been a criminal in kinetic space? Would they attempt to pull these same tricks in kinetic space or are they only doing it because they have the safety of the internet? That's very fascinating to me. And it's also fascinating to me to imagine is the fact that the internet is enabling that in a much quote unquote safer way is it indicative of that we had a broader percentage of people in society that were willing to do this stuff anyway? So what's the chicken and the egg? Is it people would do it anyway or that they learned that it could be done and then are doing it because it's safe? I mean, what's your what's your take on that? I think it's uh, the whole point of the internet was to make the world smaller. Mm-hmm. So make our community closer. So that's what it did. I'll think on Pakistan. I've seen where these people are and live, and they wouldn't have access to that type of money mm-hmm. anyway, any, in any other manner. Even if they did do kinetic crime, they wouldn't make this type of money. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I think the other part of it is that the repercussions are very low. Right. You're not going to go to jail in these areas. In a lot of locales, you are just not going to go to jail. Nothing's going to, you might get a CND from a company and you're going to hang it on your wall. So I think it's the ability to generate a good amount of income with not a lot of outputs, like financial outputs, and mm-hmm. being able to do it from a comfort of your location on the other side of the world without repercussions. Yeah. You know, on the repercussion side, some of those countries, and I believe Pakistan is one of these countries, it's not illegal to do it anyway, unless the person is also a citizen of the country. I I seem to recall reading that lots of Central Asia and some of former Soviet states have these laws where you're actually not breaking your domestic law by conducting these crimes internationally because the scope of their legislation was written in a different fashion. And I think only recently did the Russian Federation change theirs. And I don't believe it was broad strokes. I believe they took specific types of crime that are now illegal to conduct internationally. But for the most part, they're, it's still not illegal. In fact, it to the point where you know one of the kind of safety hacks, if you will, is to keep a Cyrillic keyboard loaded on your uh, electronic devices because a lot of automated malware that these folks would write because they don't want to go to prison in their own country. Because like you said, the situation there isn't good to begin with. Now imagine jail in a country that's not great to begin with. So they would put these in there so that they didn't even accidentally infect someone who might be a citizen of their country. And in their case, you know, they have a unique alphabet. So they would look to see is this keyboard loaded. So very interesting stuff. Yeah. And we saw that, that even if there is a law, the appetite from law enforcement is very low unless or legal, unless you are perpetrating something, they are perpetrating something against their people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the minority they like to target, which is like also horrible. But yeah, I think that also intertwines with the general worldwide law enforcement issues with cyberspace crimes. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't really know what to do with this. This is not someone robbing someone. This is not someone robbing a bank. This is in the ether or this is crypto. And we just really don't know what to do with it. And that happens a lot in dealing with law enforcement. Not all the time, but that, that does happen. Yeah. And until they figure out taxation on the crypto stuff, I don't think that the state, the proverbial state, that is, 
is going to have much interest in defending those as assets because they're not getting their share until they are transferred out of that space. You know, so until kind of laws and regulations step up to there, at least in this case of crypto, I think you'd have a hard time going and convincing some law, some legislator or some prosecutor or even boots on the ground law enforcement that, you know, your random string of letters and numbers has been taken from you and that it's really worth a lot. And, you know, A, it's technically over their head, but B, there's almost literally nothing in it for them that it's not taxable. It's not, you know, that I think there's a bunch of headwinds there. So being mindful of the time, uh, we try to hit kind of like the lunchtime sweet spot. One last question for you. So what are three pieces of actionable advice that you would give to people so that they could either identify and defend themselves against or identify and educate perhaps if they're a CISO and you know they have a lot of staff? I mean, what advice do you have for folks that would help them be prepared for this either for themselves directly or on behalf of a larger organization? I think going from an from an organization perspective, from a defender perspective, the thing I'm really passionate about is think like the adversary. Get out of the defender silo. Understand how your adversary thinks. What are they looking for? What are they after? Their why and their how. That's my biggest thing that I also I always try to push is not a lot of people end up thinking like the adversary, end up th thinking about how the adversary is circumventing you at multiple levels. The other thing, I've been thinking about metrics a lot recently, and metrics in our space, I think, are one of the hardest things that we have to deal with. But a lot of metrics that I've seen in the space are, are revolving around whack-a-mole. How many accounts did I take down? How many adversaries did I stop? Rethink your metrics. Rethink your goals behind the metrics and what are they getting you? Are your metrics creating your, your whack-a-mole environment in which I took down a lot of things, so it must be good, so I'll take down a lot of things, but that lacks substance. And again, that goes back to the adversarial thinking. The other thing, my last thing is for everybody, is just be curious. Like being suspicious is not something that everybody's going to be always. It, we are all suspicious, and sometimes it's exhausting. But be curious. On one hand, try to understand what the other person on the other side wants. But when we go into the business space for a CISO, for professional, for people in security, understand your business. Really deeply understand what motivates each piece of your business to get to where they want, what motivates their decision making, and how you can become one of those motivators to making decisions instead of being the hindrance to making decisions or the hindrance to for growth or whatever. And again, this is intertwined with understanding the adversaries. The more you understand how your business works and what are the motivators, you can augment them to fit how the attackers will go after them and then position yourself in a place that you are a trusted member that helping the business grow. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that. I think there is a paucity of understanding of the nuance of what should be motivating individual components of a business. A lot of people do tend to look at the big scheme as like, well, is the company making money? But then they maybe do have, in some cases, really large companies have whole divisions where they don't really know why they're doing that piece of the business. And unfortunately, a lot of those divisions 
they close those divisions up because they don't end up performing in a way that one person had an idea, hey, let's go do this. But because the people you know, within that business unit didn't understand it themselves, they didn't have that same motivation as the person who maybe envisioned it and it wasn't articulated. But you know, if I could go back just for one follow-up question, you know, you mentioned being curious, but you also said, you know, consider yourself from the adversary. Are there tools like you had mentioned someone was sending you profile pictures? Were they real? Or like did you use like reverse image search to see like, hey, is this a common, you know, reused picture? So sometimes, yes. In my case, it wasn't, but I've spoken to people that use tools like TinEye. I don't know if Google reverse image still works, kind of works. Interestingly enough, most of the people that found other instances of the same image uh-huh. are people they found other people who reported those images. My investigation into their Telegram groups is they just have the scammers just share hordes of these pictures that might be authentic, that probably are. They're not, they're a lot more sophisticated than most of the actors that just use like stock pictures that you can find on the internet. Those are not usually. But another indicator that I forgot to say before that I think is really important is I wouldn't say that the attackers are lazy, but they want to be fast. So one of the things that it really, really sticks out to me, I'll pick on LinkedIn, for example, but it's everywhere, is that the accounts that are trying to get you are extremely sparse. There's nothing there. There's no mm-hmm. content. They're an executive at a place, doesn't really say much. Giving it a second and third look usually will tell you, this looks weird. Yeah. Yeah, I get those often. Once I became CIO for us, there's something about the title that seems to have relative to chief evangelist, which I already had a chief title, but apparently that's not very sexy, right? CIO, I probably get three to four of these clearly fake accounts trying to link with me and they won't say why. They won't be like, hey, heard your podcast or hey, saw you talk at this event or hey, interested in your products or hey, uh, want to sell you something because I get loads of those as well. But there'll just be a random link typically a female profile picture and a lot of buzzwords that if you put together, don't say anything uh, and they stand out. So I I get loads of them and didn't before. So that I, I'm apparently, I have a title that is apparently attractive to these folks. A thing that I did, so first of all, I noticed them at some point targeting people in the trust and safety space, which was mind boggling to me. They even talked to the person that targeted me said, oh, you're in the safety space whatever that means. But the thing that I found helpful is I use Clyde and I used ChatGPT and I put the just the blurb that they sent to me or the blurb that they have on their account. And I said, hey, can you discern if this is translated from any language? Usually it says yes. And usually the top language is uh, Mandarin. Interesting. So those are the things that if you go to, want to go the extra mile, the language that they're connecting you, they're just doing Google Translate. They're writing in Mandarin. Right, right. And their core language doesn't lend itself to direct translation. Right. It becomes, it, it's very flowery. It's very formal. Right. And ChatGPT or any LLM can, can tell you that, usually. Yeah. 
Very interesting. Very interesting. So, Asaf, thank you so much for joining us today. By the way, I want to wish you a belated Happy New Year uh, if you've uh, followed the Israeli calendar. But thanks so much for joining us. If our listeners had uh, interest in following your work, uh, seeing what else you were up to, do you have social media that uh, that is uh, that is real? Yes, I do. <laughs> I, I I'm actually I've been for the last several months very active on LinkedIn. So okay. We'll be- Okay, excellent. Uh, Well, I'm sure our listeners uh, will be interested to see what other research you do in that space uh, and be following along. So thanks everyone for joining us today. And thank you, Asaf. It was a very interesting topic and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.